Last week, we, um, we finished our series through Ecclesiastes. And uh, I don't know about you, but I'm actually a little sad. I, I wasn't sure if I'd be saying that at the end when we began. Um, but Ecclesiastes was so good. There's, there's so much in there, I think. I, it really changed my perspective on a lot of things in life. Um, but that being said, we're done. Okay, so we're on to the next thing. And we're actually going to step into a book today, uh, just one step. We're not going to start a series through this book. But we're going to go to a book that's pretty uh, about as different from Ecclesiastes as you can get. So if you have your Bible, let's go to Acts 17. Acts 17. I hope you have your Bible. That's basically all our church is about. We don't have a lot of fancy things. Simple church just trying to be about God's word. Acts 17, that's in the New Testament. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts at the end. And I'll explain what's going on in a moment. Um, but first, as you uh, get there, I want to start with this. Recently, a TV show was made, came out a couple years ago, I think, called American Gods. And uh, I'm not recommending it. Okay, I always have to say this when I bring up a book or a movie. I'm not recommending it. I don't even think it's good, much less good for your soul. But it's based on a novel by the same name that came out in 2001, American Gods. And it begins with this guy named Shadow. Okay, so some of you might be familiar, but a guy named Shadow, he's in prison. And at the beginning of the story, he gets out of prison only to find out that his wife was killed in a car accident while he was in jail. And not only his wife, but his best friend was also killed in a car accident. And to add insult to injury, he finds out that they were driving in the same car because they were having an affair behind his back. So he's completely crushed. He has no one to turn to. He just got out of prison. He doesn't have anything. So he turns back to a life of crime. He becomes a bodyguard slash errand boy for this mysterious man named Mr. Wednesday. And then strange things begin to happen to him, okay, even beyond kind of his circumstances. He meets uh, this little person that turns out to be a leprechaun, a real-life leprechaun. He didn't even think they existed. And then he meets these otherworldly people uh, with strange names who have strange abilities, someone named Mr. Nancy, another person named Loki Lysmith, another person named Mr. Ibis. And long story short, it turns out that all these people that he's meeting, all these people uh, uh, that he's encountering uh, are part of an entire world that he wasn't aware of before, a spiritual world where the gods of lore and mythology are actually real. Mr. Ibis is the ancient Egyptian god Thoth. Mr. Nancy is the god Anansi, the spider god. Loki Lysmith is Loki, the trickster god of Norse mythology, the son of Mr. Wednesday, who turns out to be Odin, the god above all the other gods in the Norse pantheon. They call themselves the old gods, and they actually have been targeting Shadow for a while. They need his help because their powers are fading and they're dying. The gods are actually dying, and they need this human being's help. And the reason why they're dying... The reason why their powers are fading away is because no one believes in them anymore. That's at the center of this book. And it's a fascinating idea. In American gods, the gods only exist. They only have power. They're only gods if there are people who place their faith in them. It's human faith. It's human belief. It's human religion that makes the God, gods actually real. In other words, the gods, they need us as much as we might need them, maybe more. Now, first of all, please don't get me wrong, okay? I don't want anyone to, you know, any kid in here to be like, at church we learned that we should worship Odin or something. I'm not saying these gods are are real, okay? The gods of mythology are not real. I'm not saying we should think of them as such. I'm not trying to fill your minds with pagan religion or anything like that. But I do want you to consider this question. What makes the so-called gods, and for the audio, I'm putting finger quotes here, what makes so-called the so-called gods of pagan religion different than the true God of the Christian faith? The God that we worship, the only God who made heaven and earth and everything in it. What makes them different from our God? What's the difference? What's the distinction? What is your answer 
to that question. And I bring this up because in this new series that we're beginning today, we're going to talk a lot about what God wants from us. It's going to be very different than Ecclesiastes. We're changing gears a little bit. We're going to talk a lot about what God wants from us, or at least it's going to sound that way as we get into it. It might sound like God is in a bind, that God needs something from us, that God is making a petition to you. I need your help. Something has gone wrong and I need you. And haven't we heard that kind of language before, even in the church, even from the pulpit of an evangelical church? The church is the body of Christ, for example. The church is Christ's body. And for his body to work, you need to serve. He's the head, but you are the hands and the feet. Nothing's going to happen unless you sign up for this ministry or whatever. Or how about this? In the Old Testament, the Israelites were called to tithe 10% of everything that they had. And in the New Testament, it's even more. So, hey, this ministry, this church, this nonprofit, it's not going to work unless you give 10% at least of your income to us. That's your duty. You are the fuel that makes God's engine run in this world. Even in indirect ways, we imply our indispensability to God. It's why so many people say God helps those who help themselves, right? Part of it is about you taking action, but the subtext is God won't or can't do it alone. He's not going to do it unless you kind of tie up your boots and you pick yourself up. But what is the truth from scripture? The truth is God actually doesn't need anything. He literally needs nothing. So today we're going to start something different than anything we've done before, different than Ecclesiastes, any book we preach through, we're still going to be preaching through the Bible. Okay, exposition is still the name of the game here at Zoe. It always will be, Lord willing. But we're going to start a series called Faithful with More. Okay, Faithful with More. It comes from the verse that says, he who is faithful with little will be entrusted with much. Faithful with More. It's a series on something that the Bible talks a lot about, stewardship. We're going to be talking about stewardship. And the reason why is the elders of Zoe, the pastors here, we're convinced that it's time to begin in earnest to seek a more permanent uh, home, I guess you could say, for our church. We're going to start a capital campaign, in other words, or to put it more bluntly, we're going to need to raise money so that we could buy a building. I'm not trying to sugarcoat it. That is what it is. That's what we're going to try to do this year and next year. And the thing is, a church of our size, uh, it's pretty big for a church that rents still. Okay, to buy a building that would even be remotely close to this building is very expensive. And we talked about this at the member meeting. Again, we don't want to sugarcoat anything. That's just the reality of the situation. And we can't rent forever. Things have been really good here. Uh, we're really blessed by uh, our hosts here at this church. We have a good deal. But again, the agreement was never for us to be here indefinitely forever. So we feel like this is the time where we need to start preparing for the future. And all of us are going to need to contribute in some way, at least those of you who call Zoe your home. Uh, At least hopefully all of us will. But that being said, we don't want this to be all about us just getting up here and talking to you about how you need to give money. We don't want to just get up here and say, hey, are you robbing God? Let's go to Malachi, even though it does say that in Malachi. That's not where we're going to be hitting your heads with every single week. We don't want the bottom line to be about what we need from you. In fact, it's not even about a building at the end of the day. It's not even about this church. Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He wasn't talking about our specific local church. Zoe could go away tomorrow and God's plan would still go on and everything would be fine. It's not about us. This is about really God and you. God and me, God in each one of us individually. Your relationship with God as a Christian, as a son or a daughter, as a steward. We have a higher priority than raising money because God, the Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't need our fundraising. He doesn't need our buy-in. He doesn't need us at all to accomplish his purposes. You heard the scripture reading. Hopefully you're paying attention. God does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth. If there was no one to worship him, then the stones would cry out. Do you remember this? And yet, even though he doesn't need us, he gives us a stewardship to be faithful with. And that's what we're going to unpack over these next few weeks. 
We're going to talk about what this means, what this looks like, and hopefully the goal won't just be to raise money for a building, but it will be about building us up as a church in spiritual maturity that we might be more biblically informed and theologically astute, that we might please God and live for him more in our lives. So if we're going to raise money, uh, one of the things we want to talk about isn't just the fundraising part, but really about what the Bible says about money in general. We're going to try to develop a biblically robust theology of what money is according to God's word. So that's what our community group season is about. And I know I made an announcement, but if you are a member of the church, I really encourage you to sign up for a community group, even if you never have before. One, because I think fellowship is very important in the church. We shouldn't give up meeting together. But two, this is something that we're trying to all do together. And I think that this book, this study will be really helpful to understand kind of the heart behind what we're trying to accomplish. So today's the last day to sign up. Hopefully you can sign up. It's just a few weeks, okay? Just a few weeks to sign up to fellowship with brothers and sisters and learn. So hopefully you can do that. So that's what that's going to be about. The series is going to partially be about that. We try to avoid talking about money. We don't want to be seen as grifters or anything like that. Televangelists who are telling you, bless us so that we could bless you. But because, you know, we're going to talk about money explicitly, we figure you might as well go all in and just get into the word and see what it says. And we're not just going to talk about money. Okay, that, that'll be at the end of this series. We want to talk about the bigger issue kind of behind that, which is our stewardship how are we supposed to view not just our, our funds, but also our lives in light of the Lordship of Christ? And that's the thing. If we're going to talk about stewardship, so even bigger than that, even bigger than us being stewards or servants of God, we're going to start with actually, who is God? What does it mean that God is our master? We are servants, but what kind of servants we are depends on what kind of master we serve. So we're going to start by talking about God and how he is the Lord of everything. Everything we own, everything we are, everything in all of heaven and all of earth. See, stewardship actually isn't so much about what God wants from us, because God doesn't need anything from us. Stewardship is actually more about what God wants for us. And that's what we're going to unpack starting today. So please excuse the long intro. I, I already do long intros anyway, but this was even longer, so I apologize but let's read our text, Acts 17. Acts 17, go to verse 22, and let me read to verse 34. We won't cover the entire thing, but I want to give you the context here. Acts 17, 22, a very famous passage. I don't know if I've ever preached from Acts here, so kind of exciting. Acts 17, 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think, that the, that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. God, you are bigger than anything we could even conceive of. We throw around, throw around these words all the time. We, we speak of you as being the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and how you are 
the name above every name and how you are higher than any other. And yet, God, so often we confess that we don't actually think of you that way. So, God, I pray that during this time, I, I just ask that you would give us a sense, that you would, that you would enlarge our vision, God, that you would help us to, to grasp a little bit more of who you are. That you are a God who literally needs nothing from us. That you are a God who is eternal. All of our lives are but hevel before you, just a vapor. And God, I pray that that would do something to us, that we would see our smallness in light of your glory. And I pray, God, that that would transform us as we look to you. Thank you for your word. God, we know that your word is grace to us, that you would condescend to speak to us and reveal yourself to us. We pray that your spirit would help us to behold the wonderful things that are in it, even now. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Very few people understood stewardship like the Apostle Paul. He was on the road to Damascus. You might know the story. He was going to persecute Christians when Jesus met him on that road. A flash of blinding light, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, and that was his Jewish name. Paul was his Greek name within the Roman Empire. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Even though he didn't believe in him, even though he hated the people that followed him, something about that moment, he recognized something that was undeniable, that Jesus was Lord. And the Lord Jesus called him to be his missionary to the world. And Paul traveled thousands of miles. He preached to thousands of people. And eventually he gave his life for the cause. He was beheaded under the Roman emperor. Paul was central to God's plan if you read the book of Acts. And yet, make no mistake, and Paul didn't make this mistake, he wasn't needed by God. Out of all the sermons that Paul preached, maybe none are more well-known than this one right here in Acts 17. Thousands of missionaries and evangelists and apologists have looked to this text to kind of get a sense of how are you supposed to preach Christ to people who don't know anything about God at all. See, when Paul went to Athens, the pinnacle of Greek philosophy and learning, he wanted to share with them the knowledge of the one true God. Paul saw that the Athenians, they were not atheists. Okay, they did have their own religion. They believed in Zeus and Ares and Athena and their other gods. They understood the undeniability of a higher power. They knew that life wasn't, uh, life in this world wasn't all there is, but for all their gods, they had no clue as to who actually created everything and stood behind everything. So Paul wanted to tell them. And what Paul said at Mars Hill, and that's how you translate Areopagus, is going to be the foundation, okay, for what we're going to do over these next few weeks. This declaration of who God is will be the start of our series on stewardship. Okay, they didn't know anything about God. Maybe we, we do. Maybe we know a lot of things. But wherever we're coming from, whatever knowledge we have, this is where we want to start on a solid, firm foundation of who the actual God is so that we make no mistakes when we want to live for him and serve him. So three points. We're not going to be able to cover everything in this passage, just three. Three points. First, God doesn't need worship. Second, God doesn't need service. And third, God does want something. And you'll have to wait to the end to find out what it is. So it's not about what he wants from us. It's about what he wants for us. Remember that point one, God doesn't need worship. God doesn't need worship. And yet throughout the scriptures, he calls us to worship him. And this idea really bothered C.S. Lewis a lot. Okay. It bothered a lot of people, but especially C.S. Lewis, when he first began to consider the truth of Christianity, his friends were evangelizing him. Uh, the, the fact that God kept commanding worship and praise really was a stumbling block. In fact, in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, Lewis confesses that when he first began to kind of uh, research Christianity, uh, what turned him off was this constant, incessant uh, call for giving glory to God. 
This is what he said, quote, unquote, uh, quote, he said, we all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. We despise still more the crowd of people around every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity who, gra- who gratify that demand, end quote. Okay, we hate the insecure person who's always fishing for compliments. We also hate the people that flatter that person. And to C.S. Lewis, it seemed like that's what religion was. There is this God who demands everyone to talk about how great he is. And Christians, their duty is to gather around and just say it, whether they actually feel it or not. Religion was basically like a forced fan club so that you can go to heaven. And religions are kind of like that, except for one. And this is what Paul says in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, the Areopagus was a place where thinkers and philosophers came to debate, okay, to teach, to learn, to talk about ideas. The name Areopagus, like I said, it translates to Mars Hill. So if you've ever heard of a church called Mars Hill and wondered why are they naming a church after a planet, it's not necessarily that. It's because of this passage, okay, Mars Hill, where the gospel was brought to people who had no idea about God. Paul had arrived in Athens with evangelistic zeal, preaching Christ to both Jews and Greeks. And the philosophers had taken notice, the Stoics, the Epicureans, and they said, this is interesting. Why don't you come to the Areopagus and we'll discuss this further together. You can present your ideas more fully and we'll listen. And this is what Athens was. It was a place where people talked about philosophy. So Paul, he accepts the invitation, so to speak, And he starts with a compliment. He doesn't come out guns blazing per se, even though he is going to drop a bomb on them. But he starts off by trying to kind of reach some common ground. He says, I perceive that you are very religious. You take religion, you take your worship of things seriously. He's not here to antagonize. He's here to evangelize. And this opening serves a dual purpose. He wants to gain their ear, but he also wants to set the course of the discussion. What I'm going to talk about isn't just philosophy, but I'm going to talk about theology. It's not just an idea for the ivory tower. This is something that is very important for how you live your life. I perceive that you are very religious. How did he perceive this? Well, you can go to Athens now and you can still see the ruins. There are temples everywhere. There are statues and sculptures to the many gods of the pantheon. I I mentioned them already, Zeus and Ares and Athena and Artemis and all these different gods. Paul calls these objects of worship in verse 23. He says, I can see that you are worshipers. And it's here actually that we have common ground with them too. You might not think it. Okay, you could walk around anywhere and say, hey, have you uh, prayed to Zeus lately? And you'll probably get zero people who have done so in the past, I don't know, 2,000 years. But Paul Tripp once said, human beings by their very nature are worshipers. Worship is not something we do. It defines who we are. You cannot divide human beings into those who worship and those who don't. Everybody worships. It's just a matter of what or whom we serve. The Apostle Paul, he, he just looked around at the Areopagus. He saw carved sculptures of men and women who were labeled as gods. People gave these statues their money, their devotion. They wore images of them around their neck. They worshiped these things. People today, they call themselves irreligious. They say that we don't go to church. They say that I'm not into that. We progress beyond that. I'm more advanced. We're, we're not ignorant like these people. And yet everyone, according to scripture, is worshiping all the time. And this is why I brought up American gods in the beginning, because this is kind of the genius of the idea at the center of the plot of the book. The old gods are fading away because no one believes in them anymore. But in this book, even the old gods recognize that it's not that people are becoming irreligious. People might think that they're becoming more advanced, that they're becoming atheists, that they're more learned, But the old gods know in the book that it's not true. They tell Shadow that it's not that the people have stopped worshiping us and don't worship anything. No, they stop worshiping us and they worship new gods. And in the book, the new gods who are hunting the old gods are things like media and technology. Things that people have given their lives to now. 
They devote their gaze not to Odin and Asgard, but on the TV screen, uh, to the TV screen and to cable news, for instance, doing their devotions in the latest article, spending hours and hours a day learning and getting deeper in their knowledge and their understanding. People no longer fast and pray to Artemis, waiting to enter her temple so that they could worship, but instead they wait hours in line for the latest phone or for tickets to the concert. We all worship. And maybe you worship God on Sunday afternoon, but Sunday afternoon isn't the only time you worship. Because worship is about what you think is worthy of your life, worthy of your time, worthy of your money, worthy of your sacrifice, worthy of your attention, worthy of your focus. You're always devoting yourself to something, whether it's God or something else. Could be just feeling good. We talked about that in Ecclesiastes. Could be a human relationship. Could be money. So Paul steps onto this common ground of worship, and then he uses that solid foundation to pivot to what he wants to talk about, which is God. Verse 23. He says, For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He takes the opportunity to take advantage of their paranoia. They wanted to worship all the gods that they knew about and even the one that they might not know about just in case they didn't want to displease him. Paul says, look, actually, that's why I'm here, sort of. I'm here to tell you about the one God that you don't know who's actually the only God that matters. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and on earth, does not live in temples made by man. Now you can stop there with temples all around him in Athens. He says, the God that I'm telling you about, my God, the God who sent me, made everything. And unlike your so-called gods, he does not live in temples because temples can't contain him. And understand the point he is making. This is the first point that we want to really emphasize in not only this sermon, but in this series. God, the one true God, is bigger than human religion. Let me say that again. God is bigger than human religion. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he was even before Adam was created. Isaiah 66.1. In the final chapter of Isaiah, God speaks and he says this. Thus says the Lord. Heaven is my throne. And the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? The Israelites were so focused on their temple and it was a beautiful building and God did condescend to dwell there with his presence. But God says, make no mistake. This temple is not necessary to who I am. God made heaven itself, the place where he lives. God made heaven itself to be basically the chair that he sits on. God spoke the earth into existence to be a rest for his feet. So how can we human beings make anything, no matter how great, and think that it will somehow impress the Lord of heaven and earth or contain him or be something that he needs? If anyone has a need, it's us. We need to have a bigger view of God. And I don't know how often we say this, but I know I need to say it more and I need to live it more. We need to have a bigger view of God, a more theologically accurate and biblically informed view. God is infinitely beyond us. He's greater than we can even imagine. Try to imagine the greatest thing you can. God is greater than that. Everything we do is absolutely relatively tiny and insignificant compared to his glory. And yet we're so amazed by things. Seven wonders of the world. Or we go to the mega church and we say, wow, there's so many people here. 10,000 people is nothing compared to how many people live on earth or how many people have ever been created by God. These things are not mega to God. You make a billion dollars, chump change to God. We get puffed up over these things. And the truth is, even on a personal level, And I just speak for myself. There are times where I feel proud of things that I've done or I feel like people should recognize it. Oh, I served in this way, so people should thank me. 
Oh, I accomplished this. So people should give me a pat on the back. We can get annoyed or angry when our contributions or our gifts or our presence aren't acknowledged. And yet the truth is, God is so great that we should have no expectation that these things even matter. Now, I'm not saying that what you do is meaningless. Okay, we preached Ecclesiastes. Hopefully you understand that. If you're visiting for the first time, welcome. Glad you're here. But the truth is we got to understand the scope and the magnitude of who God is. You got to let that sink in for a second. You're not doing God a favor by showing up on Sunday. If you didn't worship, even the stones would cry out, like I said. And then sometimes we treat God like an idol. We, for instance, act like God only exists at church. Like he's our statue in a temple that, you know, we come into church and like, okay, God's here. I got to, you know, watch my language. I need to, you know, put my phone away, whatever it might be, because God is here. I got to act more proper. And then you step outside and you're like, phew, glad God's not around anymore. I can cuss or do whatever I want to do. We're back to living for the worst parts of the world when we think that God is out of earshot. But the truth is God is everywhere. God is literally everywhere you go and everything is under his lordship. So this is where we start. God is big. He's bigger than our church. He's bigger than any human religion. He's bigger than anything going on in our lives. He's bigger than heaven. He's bigger than earth. He's so big that he doesn't need anything. And Paul builds on this in the next point. If you thought that this was kind of, I don't know, a downer, wait till the second point. God doesn't only need worship. He doesn't need service. He doesn't need anything you could do for him. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now, this point is related, but it's different. Paul is saying that God doesn't need humans to do anything. And this is counterintuitive for almost anyone who has grown up in church at all. Of course, God needs us to do stuff, right? I mean, that's why we, we have missionaries. That's why we serve in church. That's why we have volunteers. That's why we have preachers, because how will they hear if there's no preacher? He's on heaven. We're on earth. We are his boots on the ground, so to speak. Kind of reminds me of uh, that old World War I poster. I'm sure you've seen it. It's like 100 years old. But uh, for World War I, the United States printed out this poster of Uncle Sam with his finger pointing right at you when you walk by. And it says underneath on the bottom, what does it say? You guys know. It says, I want you. I want you to join the army and go fight the Germans or whatever. The truth is, Uncle Sam didn't just want soldiers. Uncle Sam needed soldiers. Okay, we needed people if we were going to have an army to fight. And it's funny because for the British who had their own version of it, I don't know, there's like a king on there or something. For the British who were much closer to the front lines, their poster just got right to the point. It just said, hey, we need you. Okay, we need you right now. And there was a kid's song I learned in church growing up that goes, I may never march in the infantry. You guys might know this. Maybe we'll have Jeff sing it at the end. I may never ride in the cavalry. Shoot the artillery. I may never fly or the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. Now, that's not wrong per se. Okay, we are called to put on the armor of God, to fight the good fight as it were. But it can be taken the wrong way. The misunderstanding can arise. God looks at me as indispensable to his purposes on earth. If we don't work for him, nothing's going to happen. Now, the Bible does talk about how God uses means, of course. He can use our service, and he does. But make no mistake, Paul says, who was the greatest missionary of all time. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Now turn with me to Psalm 50. You can keep your place here. Psalm chapter 50. Right toward the middle of your Bible. Psalm 50. Give you a moment to turn there. We'll be in verse 8. This is a psalm of Asaph. Psalm 50, verse 8. This is God speaking through the psalmist. He says, 
Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. So he's saying, it's not that you have been disobedient. Okay, the people had been doing their sacrifices according to the protocol. They had been showing up with an unblemished goat or dove or bull or whatever it might be, and they were offering the sacrifice at the temple. It's not because of that. Verse 9, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. And then verse 12, do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? They were offering the right sacrifices, but they were offering it with the wrong intention. They were offering it with the wrong attitude, with the wrong understanding. They thought that somehow they were doing a favor to God, like we were talking about. They brought their bulls and goats and doves, and they worshiped God according to procedure. But God rebukes them because it's not about the outward action. It's about the inward devotion. He's saying, I don't actually need the animal. I want you. If you're here, right, offering the bull and making sure that it's clean and you're doing the sacrifice, but your heart is actually a million miles away in your business or whatever it might be, then you're missing the point. You're acting like I need these things because I was hungry. And I love this. He says, even if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Why would I tell you? What are you going to give to me? <laughs> like, hey, you know, I, I forgot my wallet, Jesse. Can you uh, get me a Snickers at the vending machine? God can turn dust into a human being. He doesn't need us to spot him a few dollars. Go back to Acts 17. Acts 17. Paul is giving perspective. It's not just that God is big, but it's also that we are small. It's not just that God is great. It's that we are actually not. God is the creator. We are the creatures. And that gap is wider than we tend to even consider. Look at verse 25 again. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He is the one who sustains our life. Ponder that for a moment. The only reason you are still alive is because God wants you to be. I mean, some of us, we don't think about that on like a moment-by-moment molecular level. But even if you think about all the close calls you've had in life, the time where you could have been in a car accident and... You know, it just went right by you and you were okay. The time you were really sick, but then you recovered. Think about these things. You could have been gone, but you're not. And it's because God wanted you to be here. God wanted you to be here. Hebrews 1.3 says that the Son of God upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's God himself who upholds everything at all times, second by second. He gives us breath, Paul says, We are not clocks that were wound up at birth and then let to run out our time on our own. No, every breath, every breath is a gift from God. And then Paul just goes for it. He just says everything. Everything is from God. Every single thing. There is not one thing we could give to God that he has not already given to us. Even our very souls. See, the difference between the one true God and all other quote-unquote gods is that God doesn't need us. We need him. And that distinction is absolute. There is never one second of our lives where God needed us. There is not one instance where God needed us. There is every instant, every second that we needed God. And this should humble us. Look, if we raise money, a lot of money, and we get the nicest building of all time, we shouldn't pat ourselves on the back, even though I will thank you personally. We should fall on our face and give thanks to God. Because where did that money come from? Think about it. If we serve and bless others with our gifts and have an impact on the world, you might be the most influential Christian since Billy Graham or whoever. We shouldn't get big heads about it. We shouldn't want churches to name their building after us or, or to have ministries named after us, whatever. We should say with John the Baptist, a person cannot receive anything unless it is given him from heaven. 
He must increase, I must what? I must decrease. We can do things for God, don't get me wrong. That's part of our stewardship. We should honor those who serve, and we should thank them. We should be appreciative. But it's not done out of some kind of lack on God's part. It's never done apart from God's upholding and his power and his equipping. We're not the expert consultants that God calls in to do what he cannot accomplish. Oh, it was getting really, really dry around here. I needed Jesse to tell some jokes. It's never that. It's never that on a human level. Like a father who involves his children in the activities and chores that he's doing, even though they won't do as good of a job as he would, God allows us to participate in his work in the world. You know, about 13 years ago, maybe 14 years ago, Lighthouse, the church that planted Zoe, church that I was a part of for over a decade, I was on staff there, I was doing ministry there, I, I went. I was a college student, there attending that church. I learned a lot. I grew a lot, but they did a similar thing. They went through a, a building campaign. They had to raise money. They were meeting at a school and the, the cafeteria was super small. It had this purple unicorn on the wall and they were trying to like cover it up, but you could still see the horn. Uh, every worship service is a little bit like strange, you know, like kind of like, uh, I don't know. It seemed kind of like sinful almost, but lighthouse, there's something they would always say. They would always say this, and I think we would do well to heed. They would say, at Lighthouse, we never want anyone to say what a great service or what a great sermon or what great music or what an awesome building or even what a great church, but what a great God. And I remember Lighthouse was meeting in that unicorn cafeteria, and sometimes in that area of Southern California, there would be skunks that would like walk by, and it would smell so bad in there while we're worshiping. And now they meet in the super nice building and the church has like a thousand people and it's very influential and it's grown a lot. And yet the message is the same because it was sowed into them from early on. It's not about how great we are or how not great we are. It's not about how, how polished our service is or how polished it's not. What a great God. And this leads to the third and final point because, okay, God doesn't need our worship, doesn't need our service. It sounds like he doesn't need us at all. So what's the point of all of this? Point three, God does want something. What is that something? Because God isn't lonely. He's not needy. He's not weak. He's not homeless. So he needs a temple. He's not hungry. What's the point of all of this? Why do we worship? You might say it's because he's worthy. And that is true. He is worthy. But there's a reason in this text that Paul gives that points us in a certain direction. There's a reason why you were created. There's a reason why you were chosen before the foundation of the world, why you were saved, why Jesus Christ shed his precious blood for you, why he called you to himself, and why you're even here right now. What is that reason? Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all of the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. God made one man, Adam, and from Adam, every nation. The God that Paul is talking about is not the Israelite or Hebrew God only. He is the God of everything and everyone. And his claim is on everything and everyone that he has made. And why did he make us? Why did he make you and me? Not because he needed us. But notice, because Paul says it, he made us that we should seek him and perhaps feel our way toward him and find him. He made us that we should find him. A man found a treasure in a field. I don't know if you heard this story before. A man found a treasure in a field, and he buried that treasure again. He hid it, and in his joy, he went, and he sold everything that he had. Everything. He sold his house, all his possessions, cashed out his bank account. In joy, he gave that all up. And he bought that field so he could have that treasure. And Jesus said, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. The error of so much religion, even evangelical religion, even religion that purports to be biblical is that it's all about what we can do for God at the end of the day. We're just being pushed so hard to do more because God needs it. 
Guilt is being placed upon our backs because if you don't do it, who's going to do it? God is needy. You got to give more. You got to sacrifice more. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with sacrificing more. Don't get me wrong. But it's about the reason. In fact, the reason should be the exact opposite. It's not about what God needs from us. It's about what he can do for us. Because look at the text again, verse 27. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul quotes some non-Christian authors here, okay? He quotes words these learned men of Athens would have been familiar with. And there's a whole theology here. Uh, We could talk a lot about this. But the point is, Paul is saying, deep down, you know it. We're all made in the image of God. And though sin has separated us from God, even though in our sin we are dead and, and no one is righteous, no one seeks for God, there is still something in us that is seeking for something. We know that we were made for more. It's why we worship. It's why we seek the transcendent experiences that we seek. You see it in all these different people. They go for the thrills or the experiences. They go to a concert because they want to hear loud music and raise up their hands and feel like they're part of something bigger. They want to worship a person who is larger than life. It's why we're always sacrificing for something. It's why we feel like we need to sacrifice our family to get ahead at work. Why does that even matter? It's because we feel like we need to push forward. We sacrifice work for the pleasure of entertainment, whatever. We're always acting in ways creatures made by God were created to act, except in our sin we worship idols instead of the one true God. So what is Paul doing here? After this presentation of the God who needs nothing, He calls them to repent, verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He's talking about Jesus This isn't philosophy. This isn't just ideas. This is about a real event, a real person that Paul met on the road to Damascus. Jesus lived and breathed and claimed that he was the Christ, the son of the living God. Before Abraham was, I am, he said. And he was born into our world, God incarnate. Why? Because in our sin, we are dead. And we are on the path to eternal judgment in hell to pay the penalty for our sins, but Jesus came to save us from that, to call us to the kingdom of heaven, the treasure that is in a field. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What does God want? Why does he want us to repent? Why is Paul on a missionary journey? Because God put it together. God wants our hearts. That's what God wants. He doesn't need us. We can add nothing to him, but he wants you. Now, don't make this about you. I've heard a million sermons that start with that. God just wants you. He's so lonely. He's not lonely. This is about the God of eternity who has always existed and always will, who placed the stars in the sky with his fingers, who is completely self-sufficient, the triune God who is a community within himself. He needs no friends but he wants you to be his friend. For some reason, only explained by amazing grace and staggering love, he wants to know you, or rather, for you to know him. See, worship is for God, but it really helps us. Service, it's for God, but it's really so that something can be done in us. This is what C.S. Lewis discovered when he searched more. He realized that worship is actually the overflow of joy. In fact, let me read to you this quote. There is nothing insufficient in God that he needs our worship. Rather, he wants it. He wants us. The command is an invitation. Lewis saw that praise reverberates all throughout creation. The people are always praising different things. They're praising a job well done or their favorite book or movie. The praise of of beautiful weather is everywhere or delicious food. Uh, the, The praise of people or technology. And they do it not because they're commanded to do it, but because it does something in them. And Lewis realized it actually completes your joy. You eat a good meal 
and you push your chair back and you say, that was so good. You feel like you need to say it. It makes it better to say it. See, God, when he calls us to worship him, it's not because he is vain. That is not the case at all. He calls us to worship him that we might find the fullness of our joy in him. So this whole thing, this building project, this series, this church, even while we planted Zoe in the first place, and zoom out even more, why we're Christian, why this world exists, it's not because God needed any of it, needed us, it's because God wanted it to be. God doesn't need you, he wants you. And there's nothing more beautiful than that. He wants us to find the joy of giving what we cannot keep, to gain what we cannot lose. He wants us to find the joy of doing something together as his people. He wants us to be a part of his work to make all things new, both in heaven and on earth. Most of all, he wants us to find him at the end of it. We'll close here. In American Gods, Shadow discovers that he is actually Odin's son, Mr. Wednesday's son, and that Odin has big plans for him to use him in the war against the new gods, ultimately so that Odin can have his power restored. And honestly, the plot is not that good, so you don't even need to read it. But the thing about the pagan gods, whether old or new, the idols that human beings have worshipped since we were exiled east of Eden, is that they want from you, they take from you, they promise so much to you, and yet they never deliver. They use you and they don't actually give you anything in return because they are unable to. They are dead. They aren't real. And even the things in creation that we worship, that we give our hearts and souls to, we not only dishonor the Lord of heaven and earth when we worship these things, but we do a disservice to us because money cannot see. Work cannot hear. Relationships, as meaningful as they are, human relationships cannot ultimately satisfy the eternity that is placed in every single human heart. We are made to seek him and find him. So hear me, faithful with more. This stewardship series is not about what we want from you. It really is what we want for you. If at the end of this, we only grow spiritually and we don't raise enough money, I would consider that a success. Because at the end of the day, it's not about what God wants from us. It's because of what God wants for us. God needs nothing, but he wants us. And that's enough. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we think about things like giving, God, and sacrificing and serving, I just pray, God, that we would look at them in a different light. That we wouldn't feel like these are things we have to do in order to earn salvation or because we have an obligation placed upon us or because you just need us so much. God, I pray that you would put, put away that self-centeredness from our hearts. And God, instead, I pray that you would lift us to something higher. That you would help us to see the joy in these things. The joy and not, uh, the joy in knowing, God, that it's not about us. That it's about you. And that you invite us, God, to be more like you every day. God, only you can work through us. Only your word can transform our lives. So, God, I pray for this entire series. God, I pray that you would use it in the life of this church for your glory. And we know that that is also for our good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.